Test Podcast featuring JJ Lang. Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I'm your host, David Visgon, and I'm joined today by JJ Lang at Chessfields on Twitter. Incredible Twitter presence in on chess Twitter. Um, that's how I got acquainted with you. How's it going, my friend? Oh, it's great. Friday afternoon, rainy day, teaching some kids how to do checkmates in two. Going to be teaching an adult how to checkmate in one after this. You know, you start with checkmate in one, two, three, checkmate in four. That's the ones that I that I, I start to miss, you know. But it's- yeah, four, four, four is a little above my pay grade. <laughs> so you, uh, you coach, uh, it says in your Twitter bio that you coach basically anybody up until about 1600 USCF. Yeah, um, that, that's pretty much right. And I'd be happy to work with people above 1600 if they want to work with me. I'm about 2100. I think that I just, for me, it's this question of, you know, there's no shortage of chess players who teach because those who can't do teach. And when it comes to doing chess enough to make a living, we're talking 2700s. So there's no shortage of people who can't do and teach. And so when you're a very serious player who's been playing enough to get to that point where you're 16, 1700, that's where I imagine that you might be looking for titled or internationally titled coaches. And I don't doubt there's a lot of great stuff that I can do with you and would be happy to work and have worked with people above there. But it's really those people in that 12 to 1500 range, especially adults who um, are very thoughtful and could maybe benefit from somebody who's very thoughtful and mostly learned how to improve as an adult where I feel like maybe I'm gonna feel a little bit more comfortable competing with grandmasters because <laughs> you don't really need a grandmaster when you're 1200 if you can afford one that's great you'll learn a lot but when you're so so that's really where I try and focus to something where I feel like most grandmasters I know don't want to teach 1200s either yeah. so but yeah but yeah no I'll, I'll teach anyone well, uh, you know, I do want to talk about uh, coaching philosophy in a second, but um, yeah, I do. You know, just before we started this, I saw you you tweeted about the candidates, so I'm just gonna just gonna read uh, the summary of this this opinion, and you can tell me. Hold me accountable for my actions. Yes, yeah. go ahead. So you said heretical take. Not super excited for the candidates. Gonna wake up at 5 a.m. to watch, but that's more a reflection of the pain of my daily existence than it is the tournament. Either Fabiano goes on a tear or he doesn't, and either Nepo blunders a piece with 70 minutes on the clock or not. If Fabiano goes on a tear, he wins. If he doesn't, and Nepo doesn't blunder pieces, Nepo wins because MVL will draw too many games. If Fabiano doesn't go on a tear and Nepo blunders pieces, MVL will win. Not much suspense. So you basically are seeing this candidate's tournament as a, as a three-way race at this point. It's, it's uh, MVL, Nepo, and Caruana. Yeah, and... Even saying Caruana is in the race feels kind of weird because he's, what, two games back? I think it's just because we've all... Caruana has won a lot of Super Tournaments, and he's won a lot of Super Tournaments by winning a lot of games. Like, there's the famous Sinkfeld Cup where he won, like, seven in a row. Right. So so I think just because, like, for Car- so for most of these players who are two points back, the thought of them going the plus four or plus five they would need to is hard to believe, but just because we've seen Caruana do it, I feel like counting him out would feel stupid if in hindsight he wins, whereas if Grishuk wins five games in a row, I won't feel like an idiot for ruling out that possibility. That will just be unexpected. I'm, I'd be very happy for that to happen. Grishuk or Aguirre would be a very entertaining win. It's just like they haven't been winning five in a row at this level. Caruana can do it. But yeah, I mean, really it feels like it's between 
a relatively solid, if somewhat chokes under pressure, MVL, and an anything but solid Nippo, who really could easily go a plus three in the second half, could easily lose a bunch of games. Um, So in that sense, it is kind of exciting, but it kind of, I don't know. And I think part of, so part of it too, you know, the joke about the pain of existence, I'm actually quite happy. My life is quite good. Um, I got engaged recently. It's my fiance's birthday this coming weekend. Um, Business is good with chess. I'm actually quite happy. It's more, it's more of a joke, but yeah, but no, it's just like, I think this tournament is a lot less exciting than it was, than it could have been, you know, if they'd played it all at once. And then just like, there were some bummers around the organizing too, right? That like, you know, like Raja was rightfully concerned about holding a tournament during the pandemic. Um, the tiebreak rules that forced Russia to bring in Alexienko instead of a stronger player made for a less exciting tournament than it might have if they could have brought in Karyakin. I'm not even saying if they brought in like a non-Russian like MVL. I just mean like if they could have brought in the best Russian, yeah. but the tiebreak rules stopped them. Um, and things like that. And then also the past year, like Wesley So has been so dominating online that it's kind of a bummer to see this huge over the board tournament resume without maybe the most dominant presence over the past year being there. And so all those things, I think, kind of put a damper on what could have been more. But no, I'm I'm excited. But like, I could be more excited. I think it's also, I mean, aside from like Tata Steel and Norway Chess, it's really the first uh super tournament uh like classical super tournament um that we've had uh really with this level of i mean even i don't think that uh chess media just because of the coronavirus situation i really don't think there was as much uh there are a lot of like excuses i know magnus didn't perform so well in his last over the board classical tournament there i think that it's been 13 months everybody's getting there now everybody's been doing their prep um but i do agree with you i I was very disappointed at, at um, how Fide treated Rajabov, especially because Rajabov has been another guy who's been in top form online. He's mm-hmm. even he's managed to take some huge games. I mean, he's he's been the anti-Dubov. He's been <laughs> I think he even won. He he defeated uh, Aronian in the one of the finals of the Magnus tours. And yeah, I would have loved to see him because his his comeback from you know prodigy to somebody who just was struggling at the top level like after 2013 Canis again uh, like. Um, cream of the crop player is, is inspirational. Um, I'm Absolutely. And I'm wondering, and also you mentioned Alexanko. I was very disappointed as well when he was the per. I, and I understand, like you said, the tiebreak rules, but I do wish that there was like a Karyakin or a Dubov instead of him because he really, yeah. I mean, he's just, he, he, he's just, you know, it's like, uh, it's like at a car show, you're seeing sports cars and you come in with the Honda Pilot. Like, that's not <laughs> to say that the Honda Pilot's a bad Ouch. car, but he yeah. just, uh, he, I, I think it'll be good experience for him. I mean, I mean, I'm actually a fan of Alexanko. I just think that he's. Uh, I don't really think he had a chance of of, sw- of mixing anything up in the tournament. Right, and when you anybody? only. Sorry. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Um, I've always like I've always liked Nippo. Um, I like most of the people in there actually. Um, but I uh, but I, I I like Nippo. I he's he's a very dynamic, intuitive player, and I find intuitive players really inspiring, especially in an era that is so dominated by calculation. Um, and so as much as like, I admire somebody who's just like such a principled player like Ding, I, I really like the idea of somebody like Nippo playing interesting chess against Magnus, taking chances, rely, not, not going into deep time pressure 
and doing some things that are surprising and really pushing and frustrating. I can't imagine Nepal winning that match, but I could imagine it producing more interesting chess than pretty much anyone else except Caruana. Yeah, I think I, I also think that since the 2018 match, um, I don't I think Caruana uh, kind of lost some momentum. So it'll be interesting to see. And also online, he hasn't been. Yeah, this is one thing I'm curious about. As some someone who's I'm sure you've played a lot of over the board tournaments. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like I mean you don't play like online tournaments for money as much I assume like like these chess like Magnus Carlsen chess tour levels. No. But do you imagine that? I guess, do you imagine that there's some momentum that will carry over or is there just maybe really is two separate worlds? Because if you look at a guy like MVL, who's currently leading the candidates, he's been horrendous online. <laughs> um, and uh, if that's going to carry over into the candidates, I don't think he really has a good shot at the, uh, at the, in the second half. I know he's, you know, uh, two points ahead of the, the bottom. But um, yeah, I mean, do you think that there's some momentum that, that maybe will be carried over the past year? That's such an interesting question, and I, I have no idea. Um, my, my hunch is no, but I think it has less to do with online versus over the board and more to do with the fact that these online tournaments are almost all rapid or rapid in blitz. And so I'd say, I'd say no, but I'd probably say no for the same reason that like it wouldn't feel good to finish last in a bunch of rapid tournaments before a classical tournament, but it would feel a lot worse to finish last in a bunch of classical tournaments before the candidates mm-hmm. than it would to, to, you know, a bunch of rapid tournaments. If anything, I feel like, I feel like if I'm MVL or if I'm MVL's team, I'm telling him, this is great. You're finally getting a chance to go back and do what you actually are a professional to do. Play long games of chess slowly over the board. Um, you can stop doing some people because, you know, like some people adjust better to online rapid than others. It is kind of funny because MVL is such a good over the board rapid and blitz player. So it was kind of funny watching him struggle in the online format. But I think it should be easy enough to say, look, that wasn't over the board and it wasn't even classical chess. Um, that said, it would, I think it would be more interesting, for instance, though, if you had somebody like Wesley So, because if if you had him and the candidates and I'm Wesley So's team, I'm telling him, look, man, it's the same thing. It's chess and you've been killing it. And just because it's slower and over the board, you're going to keep killing it. So I think like the story around like even a two game back Wesley So right now, given the year he's had and momentum there at the very least, we'd be telling him, believe the momentum, follow it. But for MVL, I think it should be pretty easy to convince him to just ignore the negative momentum because that's not slow chess. It's not over the board chess. Yeah, but, and actually, you know. I, I think with, with MVL, I think that's what has been so surprising is, I mean, I remember he defeated Magnus in Norway Chess Blitz two years ago. Mm-hmm. I, 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 why I was rooting for MVL last year is because I felt at the time that um, if MVL can just survive the, the, like, let's say another 12 straight draws or 6-6, uh. <laughs> six, six, that MVL's got to have the best shots against him in, in Rapid and Blitz because yeah, that's, yeah. that's where the strategy Carlson just drew game 12. I know a lot of people were disappointed and then just massacred Caruana. He was like 200 points better, basically, in the rapid section. It was a good strategy. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, and even Ding's rapid is pretty solid. But, yeah, MVL, I think, most consistent. I think so, another problem that I just remembered with MVL is um, compared to most of the top guys, especially the people in the candidates, his opening repertoire is rather narrow. Um, lots of sharp variations in the Nightwarf, lots of sharp Grunfelds, lots of e4 and he also didn't have a whole lot of time to update that repertoire before the first half of the candidates so there's some um speculation that he was hiding a lot of his prep 
during the past year. In I, a way, yeah. Completely in a, agree. In I a way that like, struggled. And I think that's a big part of it. And in a way, I was like, I'm sure that like the other guys who are playing candidates, you know, like I'm sure Geary hid his prep too, but Geary hiding his prep, you know, means that he pulls out his bag of a dozen different openings as black and puts two of them on hold. But when MVL's bag has one opening in it, <laughs> um hiding hiding that prep is going to have a bigger effect so so that could be something where if anything this could work in his favor which is this is great they they he's like i've been saving a year for this presumably none of his novelties have been uncorked elsewhere and if anything you know that could be that could be exciting um long term i think he should maybe learn a new opening but <laughs> yeah i mean he's still he's still a super grandmaster i'm it's, you know to, to, to criticize a super grandmaster is like now our repertoire I, but i think you're right i think and i think that that was definitely i, I think that even the last magnus carlson um chess tour event it was a lot of nidorfs like you said and he, he got absolutely crushed in some of them because he's relying on kind of like you said old lines and um yeah the, yeah you can't win a world cha- championship with that yeah, and I mean, I know that he has the new stuff. I think so. I think the problem with the narrow repertoire for him, it's not like he doesn't know stuff. He knows more than enough. It's that, you know, in something as sharp as a knight or the second or third best move is like potentially losing in some variations versus like other things, you know, like you can probably get away with like a slightly a slightly murkier alternative in the Italian game or something. But if you're playing the Night Orf, when sometimes there's only one move that gets you a game and you're trying to hide your best lines, that's when like the narrow prep is gonna burn you. Yeah. And so I think that's the problem he's been running into. You know, at at the start of the at the start of the pandemic I actually played against MVL in a simul online. Uh, on oh really? Yeah. Oh sh- cool. And, uh that was that is one of the most fun games i've ever played and i remember you know you're playing mvl and he's playing against like 25 people he actually lost a game to professional tennis player ivan lubicic um i don't know mm. how because I, <laughs> I i don't know how i think lubicic is like 1500 or something maybe he's wow. tired but he lost a game to lubicic so crazy but um uh i remember i was preparing for like six hours i was supposed to be studying and i remember it was just on lee chess like looking because <laughs> i knew i'd have black and I basically I prepared uh, uh, I prepared a dragon Sicilian with e4, and I prepared uh, I think I prepared like some weird like slav sideline for d4, and um, you know I thought yeah I'll learn this I'll learn a couple of lines to like 15 16 moves, and I really studied it, and I I got out of book at like move 14, and this guy still knows the top line theory. <laughs> Like it was like a some random sideline of the dragon. He still knows like the theory up to like move twenty, and he like, <laughs> and it was like thirty minutes. So I I kept it together, and you know at the time I was like fifteen hundred or whatever as well. So I, I was keeping it together, and then just like move twenty one, I make one mistake and I lose the game. So that was I mean that was a I really learned like, you know when you it, it's yeah it's hard to really understand like the difference you know with, with numbers you see a big number completely. Difference. But it's like you think about what is the difference between a 1900 and a 2200, and it's like, well, it's 300 points. What was the difference between like the difference between a 1300 and a 1600 is way smaller than the difference between like a 1600 and a 1900. And right. that's so interesting to me how like um, that that's kind of like hidden in the rankings. So that gave me like a re- that was like one of the first moments that I really was like able to appreciate like like high level chess like that. Mm. Yeah, those such a cool experience and i'm glad that you got to prep and then you got to see oh these guys they uh they know a lot <laughs> yeah have you ever like played a uh, super grandmaster before 
Super Grandmaster, no, not even in a simul. In a simul, the strongest player I've played is probably uh, Timur Gurev. Oh, yeah, but um, he's still he, super strong. He's super strong, but just not like MBL. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really fun. He was playing nine games blindfolded against a high school team and then another nine games sighted against adults. So I he we that was a pretty interesting back and forth game. He then I just like kind of fell apart in the end game, but there were chances. He's a super cool guy too. Um that's probably the strongest player I've played um in a simul. And then I've like been paired with Grandmasters in tournaments, which really gives you a whole perspective to how strong that level is. So like Dmitry Gurevich in Chicago, I mean, he's older, he's past his prime for sure, but still an incredible player, strong, like you know candidate for u.s championship in his prime but there are just so many times in that one game with him where as the game's going on and i really thought i was holding it together and then just realized that like pretty much everywhere i turned i pushed myself to go a half move deeper and realized that he went into this line because he prepared something for that variation a half move ahead a half move before i even started looking for it and it was like horrifying to realize just like everywhere i turned he had thought of my five move plan and anticipated it and it was like and when I pushed myself as hard as I could, all I could do is find where he had already been. Wow. So that's, uh, yeah, so that, 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 like you said, that really gives you a lot of um, perspective. And then um, in an online tournament recently, one of the ones that Glenn Panner organized, I think on New Year's Day, I got to play against um, Gusainov, Gadir Gusainov from um, Azerbaijan. He was like playing a like US rated tournament just because there was like a pretty good first prize. So I got to play him. He's a strong grandmaster, top 100. And that was a great game, too. Um, actually kind of back and forth, surprisingly. But it's really cool to have those opportunities. But yeah, these guys are good at chess. Yeah. Are you, um, are you looking forward to over-the-board chess again? Or are you trying to make, you know, I know you're like about 2150 USCF. Are you trying to make that final, like, 50? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been as high as, I think, 2140-some-odd. And I'm down to 2110. But I'm definitely trying to make the push. And... Um, cause I, I, cause I, I moved, I got up from 1800 to 2100 a couple years ago when I got back to chess. And so since then it's been a goal. And now that like teaching chess is primarily what I do and what I like to do, I would really like that title. And I feel like I've been putting in the work and now that I moved to uh, Nebraska, that's going to require a lot of traveling. Um, and yeah, I'm planning to go to the national open in Vegas in June, um, which should be great. Um, I'll probably try to travel to a couple tournaments a year. Um, Nebraska has a few things, but there's not a giant chess scene here. Iowa, Des Moines is only three hours away, and there's like a dozen or so masters in that state. And so there's some Iowa tournaments. I'm not super stoked, though. Like I saw like the, the next tournament in Iowa is being advertised as mask-free. Um, you don't have to wear masks. The governor let up social distancing. And I'm like, I'm not sure if this is my vibe. Like, I got my first shot. I'm definitely getting my second shot before I go anywhere. But, like, I don't know. I'm still willing to take precautions and stuff, especially mm-hmm. if they're not putting a vaccine. Requ- Maybe if everyone there is vaccinated, I would consider it. But if that's not a requirement, like, so it kind of is bumming me out to realize, oh, the <laughs> closest <laughs> chest to me is politically not aligned. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I will, I, I intend to play my ass off over the next few years. Yeah. I, I you know, it's, it's funny you say that because in, in New York, I, I mean, I started playing in the Marshall chess club. I, I actually, I've only been playing chess for like three years. I've mentioned mm-hmm. this in the podcast before. 
Um, but I played the Marshall Chess Club a couple of times. And, and right now, if you want to play Marshall, you need to be vaccinated and you actually need to send proof. They're not going to even yeah. let you in. And I still think you have to wear masks inside even, even after that because, you know, there's probably older, older players who like to go there and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, yeah, the, 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 this politics of, uh, <laughs> of uh, vaccination, very interesting. And especially there, that has an interesting, um, an interesting impact too, because a major part of the Marshall is all the super talented kids that go there. And since kids under 16 aren't being vaccinated yet, that's like, that's just like, uh, I don't, not really to pass judgment one way or another, but that's just a super interesting um, impact is like, if anything, that makes me more inclined to go out to the Marshall, because what I'm terrified for with the return of over the board check is I'm terrified of the kids who have been, you know, at like the Charlotte Chess Club camps and the U.S. Chess School camp and stuff every weekend for the past year. And like their rating might say 1900 from 13 months ago, but that was 13 months of like, you know, but like it's pretty common for very talented kids to go from 1900 to 2200 in a year. So yeah. I'm not really looking forward to getting my butt whooped by a bunch of 1900 kids who are, high, who are like 2500 online. And yeah. so I was like, oh, if I go to the Marshall, I won't have to play anyone under 16. <laughs> I remember, so. yeah. I, one of the most like humiliated things when I, when I was just getting it started, my first tournament, I remember some, I, I played some, I was supposed, I was supposed to match up against uh, a kid. He must've been seven or eight. And uh, I remember just, you know, I was like fully like 19 years old talking to somebody who was just maybe a toddler a few years ago. <laughs> And he asked me like what my online rating was on Lee Chess. And I was like, oh, because I, I was unrated at the time. Right. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I'm like 1600 or something. He's like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, like 400, 500 USCF. And I guess he, he was probably the same thing. He's just complete. And then, yeah, I lost the game to him. <laughs> he actually hung a piece in the opening and I still lost because I got like, but whatever. That was my yeah. first, first game. And uh you know, I play a lot of these beginner tournaments or I'm going to, I played like two. I'm going to play more obviously when the summer, when I can go back. And it's exactly like you said, there are kids there who are like 1000 and 1100 who are like just prodigies who that are just are just farming people for ELO. And like, that's, that's oh, yeah. too fun. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. At that level. Yeah. Oh God. At that level. Cause like the number of kids that go from like 800 to like 1600 in a year is yeah. 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 That level. Yeah. Yeah, I, when I was in New York I, for um, as part of the grad, my grad program, we had this option where we could um, do this teaching exchange. So we would, because Cal at Stanford, we didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to teach. So we would like do this teaching exchange, and we could teach at City College in Harlem for a semester. And so I was out there. And that was kind of what got me back into chess. I was like, I'm in New York. I don't really know anybody compared to writing a dissertation in philosophy. Studying chess actually sounds fun. Let's get back to this. <laughs> and so I just like got into chess again and went to the Marshall and like really loved it and was playing a lot. But yeah, like I think like one of my first games at the Marshall. So one of my first tournament games in a decade was against Davis Zong, who was like, I think 12 at the time and already 2250. And like I went out of book on move 10 in the opening and after the game, he informed me that that was a blunder because there only the book move led to equality and blah, blah, blah. And like, it was like, it wasn't that humbling because like I've known, I don't know, I'm a big believer in the ratings. So when I saw that this kid was rated significantly higher than me, I didn't feel the need to feel bad for losing to a kid i just mm -hmm. lost to a better player he just also happened to be 12 years old but but um but it was just really it was really cool or maybe he's younger than that i actually don't want to speak for that but um yeah 
but yeah, no, just so even like at the master level, it's like they're all over the place. But it was really cool getting to play these guys who are like going to be like lifetime IMs or something pretty soon. Yeah, and actually, I do want to ask you about your your, your PhD experience. But um, I you know, mm-hmm. so being that it was a New York chess scene that kind of pulled you back, what do you what's your like general opinion on the New York chess scene? Uh, well, because I moved to Chicago afterwards i'm contractually obligated to say the new york chess scene is weak soft overrated has been bloated doesn't hold a candle to chicago and a bunch of street hustlers nice um but they're really nice and that was really welcoming and really really met a lot of great characters there and you so you said you you went to marshall yeah 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 yeah. i played a bunch at the marshall for like the four months i was there um the L train was still running so I could hop to and from my Brooklyn apartment to there pretty easily. Um, yeah. And I think like just from going to the Marshall, like several times a week, I went from 1800 to like over 2000 in three or four months. Yeah. Um, I was addicted. It was great. I miss it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm planning on going like two, three times a week this summer and just playing all the Thursday actions and, uh, you know, also try to smurf a little bit in the beginner tournaments. And <laughs> right now I'm like only like a thousand ELO. Oh, sick. Yeah um but i'm like 1900 online so uh yeah watch out everyone (laughs) yeah um so you're doing a a phd in philosophy at stanford yes uh you started when in 2014 that sounds right yeah i believe so so what drew you into philosophy is uh yeah um probably probably in some way uh chess um the short answer uh so i mean i think like i think philosophy has always been an interesting um discipline especially like in college because it's this like very strange um combination of humanities subject matter and a more kind of scientific rigor or like like logical pure math rigor um which and I, so when I kind of think of that contrast where it's like you have like some very vague abstract intuition based things and then you also have some very concrete calculation based definite based stuff going on that kind of harmony I feel like is kind of what attracted me to chess or at the very least like what I got very into in chess so there's just like a sense of when I was an undergrad at UNC in North Carolina and started taking philosophy classes there is a sense in which like this makes sense to me like the humanity stuff is getting onto a lot of like a lot of really interesting questions, a lot of stuff that I find like really beautiful and pleasing in literature. But there is something about like a sort of definiteness that I wanted that wasn't there. And the math classes, besides kicking my ass, um, there's like, you know, they're kind of dry. They're kind of like geared towards getting you that degree and that job. And there is some like deeper questions that were missing. And so like, and that was the kind of thing that I think I liked about chess is you had to think very hard and precise but there you also had to like rely on intuition and like intuitions of like what things are pleasing or possible or acceptable or not and so kinds of the philosophy classes i was taking especially on like the nature of logic and like whether truth is something that exists in the world or is a man-made concept those sorts of things it's like oh this actually is this like pleasant mixture of like there's some proofs there's some arguments where you of like showing whether something is valid or not there's also some of guiding on intuitions of what's acceptable of what fits this kind of fits in with how i've like been raised as a chess player um so um, that kind of is it my uh roommate in uh my sophomore year uh was also he's he's a philosophy major and 
uh, he loved like analytic philosophy and stuff like that too. Mm -hmm. And similar reasons. Is there like a, you work on a, I I was reading your, your grad profile before, like while waiting for you to hop into the zoom room. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you like, uh, you study, like, I think it's like something about like the science of agreements and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely interested in language and communication. Um, and it's funny that kind of more connections to chess there and like, uh, what, whether, whether there's sorts of, whether, you know, there's, there's a sense in which there seems to be some sorts of rules governing conversation and like when we agree, disagree, argue and stuff. And some of those rules are just etiquette, right? Like if I just start calling you a bunch of names, you're probably going to hang up on me. And that probably (laughs) has more to do with, um, breaching norms of etiquette or maybe, more general moral norms, depending on the names I choose. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not going to call you names. But uh, um, but then but then they might think there's other rules rules in a different sense where it's like where 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 I don't know like um, where where like how much can the topic change before you're like okay this guy is just rambling and like not paying attention to the conversation at all like obvious because like we can shift convers topics pretty seamlessly and we even most speakers seem to be pretty good at like following those shifts not being caught off guard by them and writing it but there still seem to be bounds on that and there's like pressure to not violate those bounds and so there's a sense in which there's maybe rules on what's acceptable within a conversation not just in terms of etiquette but in terms of like these shifts um like or like there's rules of like, if somebody asks you a question, what's a satisfactory answer versus too much information versus not enough? What's too aggressive of a question to ask versus an acceptable one? And like, we seem to somehow know these things. And my question roughly is how? <laughs> and yeah, that's it's fascinating. a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, but that's, that's sort of my, um, yeah, that, that's sort of the general area that I'm interested in. Now, now, when you're coaching, do you have students who are kind of interested in your 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 own interest in philosophy, or is it very much just like a chess, chess, chess sort of thing? Yeah, um, I think that a lot of the adults that I work with, well, a lot of them, I think, found me from um, one of from the third best chess podcast after this one and after D's is Perpetual Chess with Ben Johnson, and. Um, I was lucky enough to be a guest on the adult improvers there. And since then, that was like maybe close to two years ago. And since then, like once a month, I still, somebody reaches out to me like on Facebook or Twitter or chess.com or something. Who's like, I heard that interview. You sound super interesting. I also have a background usually like in philosophy or something. And like a vast majority of the people I've worked with and my favorite people to work with have been people who found me from that. So I think like those sorts of connections are there, but I think there it's like less about like, I also study philosophy, even though some of them do or did. And I think it's more of like, oh, what I can, what I see from your philosophy background or what I value from my philosophy background is you focus a lot on explaining things. You focus a lot on like concepts on like kind of prying apart similar concepts into their own thing and bringing it that way. So a lot of the kind of qualitative verbal conceptual stuff that I think a certain kind of chess player really likes and can learn from because they can't hold a lot of variations in their head. And I'm raising my hand as one of the people who can't hold variations in my head that well, but can really reflect on how I think, how I've been taught to think and update it. And I think, so I think it's very attractive to certain kind of people to like have that philosophical approach to chess. Um, 
but whereas you know because i've tried to take lessons with some folks and seen other teachers teach where like they're very much focused on like looking at the lines looking at the variations and like they want you to have a certain feeling from looking at certain things but like that's never worked for me and so i don't teach that way now um, yeah with with regards to your own improvement um so you you would you consider yourself first of all as a more like more of a like a pattern-based player you're less of a calculating type more of an intuitive kind of player um pattern-based intuitive yes i don't think i know enough patterns but what i what i mean by that is, <laughs> yeah what i mean by that is like when you are, are are do you do you prefer to play structures or do you prefer to like prepare opening lines and and you know try to play play that way when you when you start a game um <laughs> depends on i mean i've definitely like studied a lot of openings my repertoire is a mess there's like night orfs in it then there's like uh very sideline closed structural like chameleon anti-sicilians so there's no like unifying theme um i do find myself that like i do find that when i play slow games i tend i tend to not go very deep in analysis like to not be i and when i when i got when i played as a kid i was all tactics all the time all calculating i would basically just which is common but i would basically like pick a move start calculating the variations as far as i could go if i liked it then i would make sure i didn't miss any of my opponent's moves and then if i inevitably did miss one of their moves then i would pick another move and so pretty much the only thing i was doing when i played chess was calculate and i was basically functioning i later realized as like a really really slow computer <laughs> that's that's how computers are at least back in that time that's how computers play chess they they pick a move and they calculate it but they go 20 ply in two seconds and i was going six ply in 10 minutes so i was just a really slow computer and then when i kind of got back to chess i was learning how to play by not doing that and instead by like really spending more time just analyzing the board and trying to spend as little time on variations as possible unless there seem to be tactics so i so i think increasingly yeah, compared to like when I was a kid, it was sixteen hundred, or like when I got back to chess and was eighteen hundred. And now I don't. I, I spend. I just spend a lot of time trying to like more analyze the board and come up with general plans. And usually, I'm not going more than a couple moves deep in variations unless there's like seems to be a big possibility of risk or reward. And that's honestly kind of nice because. Um, Partially because it's easier than calculating. Calculating is hard and calculating has great risks. But it's also really satisfying um, to like be at that level where you're battling not just a question of who can see slightly further in this variation, but just who had a better feel for what this position actually needs. There's something I find a lot more satisfying of like, oh, I lost this game. Even if I lose, like I lost this game because I failed to appreciate how important it was to shut down queenside counterplay. My opponent correctly understood how important the queenside counterplay could be. And because I underestimated that, I lost. Not because of the variation, but just like, yeah, I got outplanned. That's great. Um, that, and that also feels like something I can learn from a lot more when I'm like, oh yeah, I got outthought. So next time I just will calculate even deeper. Like that feels impossible, but I can always plan better. Now you said you were on the adult improvers uh, series mm. on the, that was that two years ago. You said, That's I believe amazing. so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who is also on the adult improver who I can put you in touch with for here, Jason Sagan, who like went from like a 1000 to master as an adult, like college and then out of college, he was, he's a friend of mine who in Oregon and he went on the show as an adult improver, then put me in touch with Ben 
and then Ben had me on the show. And that's, that, like, and that's been great. That's like my, my dream. That actually, I think, I don't remember. It, that was like my first experience, which I'm not even like a podcast person. I'll be honest with you. I only hmm. started podcasting um, over the pandemic because my brother wanted to do a basketball podcast. It was like his oh, sweet. time dream. So we started that. And then uh, I kind of had inspiration randomly in like March said, well, let me try this chess podcasting thing. There isn't really that many, but yeah. I remember like, I mean, perpetual chess is like, that's like the giant one. Like, you know, that's the, um, <laughs> yeah, Ben is nice. Yeah. I, I feel like uh perpetual chess is just so wholesome and just really well done. Uh, so, I mean, that would be um adult improver. Maybe I'll improve enough that I'll get on there. Yeah. Let's once you, let's say, let's say that once you get that rating up to 1600, I'll put you in touch with Ben. USCF? Yeah. It's a deal. It's a deal. Okay. I got you. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, just a couple of other questions. Um, yeah. Something that I wanted to talk about with regards to the candidates is, um, you, you know, I remember the candidates I was watching in my um, history class in college in my sophomore <laughs> year. Um, and all my friends in the class who were around me, because I go to a small liberal arts college, and they all looked at me kind of weird. Like, why are you have a chest? Like, I wasn't, you know, I, I just, I had chest 24 on in yep. the background taking my <laughs> notes and you know i would see like you know oh caruana played a4 and then i would just be like whoa you know and uh I, I don't think people really understood that something changed over the course of the pandemic i think first of all like chess really has become uh, uh you know when you consider for example on twitch that you know yeah people stream and just chatting but yesterday for example um uh, when magnus and botez and ludwig and and hikaru at the very start were all streaming chess you had 70,000 80,000 people watching chess which is greater than Rocket wow. League, World of Warcraft, um, a lot of these other like Rainbow Six Siege, a lot of these games that were like main, you know, mainstays of, of Twitch that people are watching and enjoying. So um, in that sense, you know, when I, I remember when I was originally watching the candidates, I was rooting for Carlson. Um, mm. I don't know how you were feeling, but um, do you think that there's going to be maybe in the public conscience, let's say we have a Caruana match or even just a match in general, do you think more people are going to be paying attention to the candidates now or do you think this really was just like some sort of online chess fad that is going to disappear yeah that's a great question um i mean i can i you can you can guess you can only guess which one i hope i mean but of course i mean my general stance is like anything that gets people watching chess is good um ideally what's getting them to watch chess is good chess and not drama or bong clouds or whatnot but if people are watching chess i think that's just good and good for chess. So I mean, you know, knowing about it was before my time. I'm 29, but like, but knowing about like how the Fisher boom and how great that was for chess, but then also how much that really did peel off. Um, I think there's some. I definitely have a little bit of skepticism about how long this is going to last, but I think I also think there's some great reasons for optimism. Like part of the reason why the chess boom faded is like not everyone lived in a place that had a chess club or a tournament or whatnot. But now with the presence of online chess, if you're into chess, you can watch you know Carlson play. You can watch like these top players play all the time. You can play against them all the, or against strong players all the time. So hopefully that should be good. And yeah, but yeah, I think that, um, but yeah, I think that especially if there's an American challenger who I guess the only American in the candidates right now is Caruana. Um, yeah, I was like, Aronian's not in the candidates, is he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, so I guess if there's an American challenger again, I imagine that would definitely spark more interest in the next world championship match than 2018. But I also think that what we might also be seeing is um, a lot of interest 
interest in, in chess going forward might actually be decoupled from interest in like these top classical super tournaments, because I think it's just always going to be a hard sell to the casual player to get them to care about a six hour game between two people going on between the same two people for three weeks. Um, like, I, I just, and, and, I don't, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, you know, if anything, like, I hope that these like Magnus Invitational, like rapid tournaments and stuff keep going and keep creating that interest. But yeah, if anything, I don't, so I don't really, I just, yeah, I don't, I wonder how much it'll translate to like slow chess and like world championship circuit. But yeah, I think like the interest in chess is here to stay because people who are playing it are learning and really liking it. And there's also just like such a wealth of chess content. You know, you have like the perpetual chess backlog of episodes. You have like all the Agamator videos. There's just so much on like chess YouTube and stuff that's already there that people who want to get into chess have a really inexpensive, virtually free rabbit hole to go down that didn't really exist in the Fisher boom. And so I think that'll keep people around and interested. I think just getting them to care about 12 straight six hour draws is just a harder sell. Well, yeah, and I think I think that's um, so. In reverse order, I do have a couple of thoughts. Mm-hmm. First, first of all, like something that I thought was—I I won't say like cognitive dissonance, but I think it's just—it's more a reflection of like how you know chess culture is in America or was mm-hmm. when it was Caruana Carlson in Norway. People were watching those six-hour matches. Like ten to thirty percent of the population at any given time was watching it on TV um, in Norway. And here was an afterthought. Right. I mean, the fact that we had you know, somebody who, who was playing in Marshall Chess Club or at Elsa and Manhattan Chess Club as well back when it was around growing up, you know, then going to Italy um, and, and, you know, to Europe to, you know, really chase these tournaments and, you know, now cu- coming back because of Rex Singfield. Um, Aronian, too. I, f- I think even if Aronian was a candidate for somehow, um, I mean, he's not in it right now, but let's say, you know, 2022 or whatever, 2023. Um, I'm not sure that that I I'm I'm still not sure really that people would be interested like you said. Having said that though, there is a way to make chess commentary fun. Yeah, I I believe. Where oh yeah, if I think um and and chess twenty four has has been really good with this at times has been very poor with this in other times. I think even you know I I watched a lot of these super tournaments with uh, Anna Rudolph and Levy Rosman. Um, there is a way to make it fun. Um, where it has to be more of a podcast form, I think you have to ask the stupid questions. I think yeah. people will get lost in the sauce if you're if you're talking about you know whether you know a four on move twenty six is a good move because you know there's a, some some variation on like move thirty six that Stockfish says is equal. Nobody cares about that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, the David uh, Howell, the David Howell and Yvanka Hoska stuff on Chess Twenty Four, I thought has been very good for that. Yeah. For like anyone can watch this and get something. Yeah. And I also, you know, from, from the chess side, I also think when you have um, like Vladimir Kramnik and Judith Polgar, I think I've never enjoyed from a pure chess standpoint, I've never enjoyed a commentary team more. The amount mm-hmm. of insight that they have mm-hmm. and just the, the way that they explain concepts and weave it with like their own personal stories. You know, of course, two of the most successful players in chess history, um, Judith unquestionably the greatest female player ever and Kramnik, who world champion, you know, who's unseated yeah. Kasparov. Um, that that's a pleasure, but I, I, you know, I think that doing fun stuff, asking the stupid questions, bringing guests on, I, you know, I had, when they had like uh, Ali Reza come on recently for one of them and just <laughs> yeah. asking like funny questions that that's good content. And th- I think that'll keep, that keeps people interested, but I just hope it lasts. I had a lot of friends. I don't know if this was the same thing with you, but when Queens Gamut came out, I had a lot of friends who, you know, maybe two years ago, just thought I was a nerd for playing chess and <laughs> You're right. so late. And right. now asking me to teach them some openings and stuff like that. And I've appreciated that because I'm glad that people are like 
seeing what kind of a beautiful game chess is. Yeah, and that is, and I, and that is just fantastic, and and so I, and I, and I think that is really exciting. Yeah, because yeah, so the main thing there is just like you know whether that gets people to care about whether there's an American challenger to the throne or whether they care about classical chess. But either way, you know, like yeah, they they care about chess. They're into chess. Like even my um fiance's like mom like during the queen's gambit boom i went over there and i she she said something really funny she was like she was like i I didn't realize like how much you have to study like how many openings there are like you have to know and this is like an actual quote it's like you have to know closed sicilians and open sicilians (laughs) (laughs) and i was like yes and anti-sicilians which weren't as big a thing in the 70s and then i lost it with that but it was just like you know it was just like a level of like of like yeah you know that was not really a conversation i was ever planning or needed to have with my mother-in-law but like that's cool you know like I don't know like if I played football like they would understand that like and I was a quarterback they would understand that like I would need need to be prepared for like three fours and four threes and like now they have a little insight into that with chess that they didn't have before that's dope now are, are you a sports fan since you mentioned football oh yeah uh yeah I mean I grew up in Chapel Hill North Carolina and went to UNC so I'm a big college basketball person although I've been like less into college sports recently because like and I also, my dad went to Oklahoma, so I grew up watching college football. But, like, I, it, between, like, the, like, just injuries, I don't know. I care too much about things like chess and philosophy that involve the use of brains to, like, feel comfortable watching much football. Yeah, and, I've given up on football, too, recently. Yeah, and, like, and, and I care too much about things like people being compensated for their labor to watch much college sports at all. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, I've kind of drifted away. But, yeah, I grew up being a big fan, um, and I still like sports and the idea of sports and like the ncaa women's tournament was fantastic this year and yeah. pretty much every year would you uh would you would you call uh, chess a sport sure yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean i know this list i know people love to have this debate but i mean i don't know i mean i think that like yeah i mean i don't know why not you know like i think that here, okay, you want something spicy? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, minute for minute, chess is more physically demanding than baseball. No. Minute for minute. I, I can't agree with you. I, you I, cannot I, just stand or sit around for that much in a chess game and win. Yeah, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from, but but uh, maybe maybe if you're talking about people in the outfield, maybe I'd agree yeah. with you. But if you're talking about, you know, uh, I, I, again, I see where you're coming from, but I still think the amount of physical action you have in a baseball game, even if it's, you know, not much because you're, you know, you're weighing on bat, I still think it's, it's, it's way more than chess. But my hot take, chess is more of a sport than golf. Um, that's my hot take. Mm. So mm-hmm. we, can, we can bounce off these, these hot takes, but, but I agree with you. I think yeah, I that seems, think that seems fair too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, mean, I think, I think of anything like what, what I think what makes it is where it's just like, cause I, I think like, cause you know, like the reason why something like golf or baseball or, I mean, or, or, or to a lesser extent, any sport that has breaks in it. So like tennis or basketball where there are breaks, even though they're much shorter football is the fact that like there, you get severely punished for lapses in concentration. Um, and that seems to be one of the defining features of all of those sports. And I think that is incredibly true in chess and the degree to which you need to have that concentration, especially at the high levels, is a sport. I also I'm open think... to the idea that blitz isn't a sport because there's no concentration. It's yeah. all intuition. But... I, I would also say that um, I think chess is 
I, I never realized until I played in my first over the board tournament. And I don't think most people realize how difficult it is to sit and think how that is physically demanding in a way. We spend most of our lives trying to avoid just doing that. Yeah. And it's, it is you really <laughs> torture your body. I think a lot of it, if, if people had a conception of a chess player as just, you know, a normal looking person, I think that this wouldn't be as much of an argument um, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, you, you, you mentally is, is it's brain tennis. That's yeah. what it is. You are, you are, you are, it's, I mean, th- that's why I love tennis too. That's why I've really grown to love tennis because it, it's the same idea of there are no, no, nothing in a vacuum. Everything is responsive. And that's, that's one of the best things you could have in a sport. Also total information. I know you talk from a philosophical standpoint, everybody has the same information. You know, it's, it's anti-poker. It's everybody, everybody knows what's on the board and it's like the better you are, the better you understand what's going on. And how, how, how do you not say that's a sport? Yeah. I don't know. It's as, as competitive as, as anything in the world. You see like countries get into arguments with each other over chess. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Oh, I'm, I, I, I'm in agreement. Um, just baseball is not a sport. <laughs> I also, I've, I, if you want to talk about sports, I fall, I've really fallen out. A lot. I, I'm a Mets fan. I mean, I love the Mets. Uh, they, they, I love but, the Mets. but I, I have to say that um, baseball is, is in a lot of trouble. Uh, and it's it's very hard to watch something that you know is kind of like approaching a, a death dive. Um, baseball uh, has has suffer is going to suffer big time in a few years just because of these inflated contracts and not enough revenue. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not really sure there's a good you know gutting the minor league system too. Little league numbers are declining. This is America's sport. One of the only things you could really say is definitively you know uh, American. Um, I think, and um, it's uh, it's 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 disappearing. It, it, you don't see it now, but it's it's very hard to to imagine what baseball is going to look like in the next uh, uh, twenty years. Uh, unlike what they you could, could say uh, in basketball, they could uh, they could turn the wooden bats into chessboards. Yeah, that would be interesting. That's a good idea, actually. Thank you, thank you. Call, <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. We call it chess ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. I'm not against that at all. I don't know how to play it, but I'm in. Yeah, no, no, at all. I think one, and one like general question I have, like especially at the scholastic level, is like this past year, so many parents have been trying to get their kids into chess because if you know, if they were families that weren't super financially affected by the pandemic, but then suddenly had a kid at home and they needed to keep busy, like many of them, I know things like chess were a great thing to do, where you can find coaches on Zoom, you can get them playing on stuff and keep them busy and focused. And some of them got super sucked into it. And so I'm really curious to see if that's going to contribute to a scholastic chess boom or how many of those kids are going to go straight back into like little league or whatever sorts of out of the house activities. And either their parents are sick of having them home all the time. So pull them out of chess or the kids are sick of being online all the time and get pulled out of chess. And like, I could see that happening, but I do think that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if like we see a kind of scholastic boom too of like kids who have been taking chess at least somewhat seriously because you know for whatever reason they their school didn't have an after school program but their parents were able to get them in an online class or like they got hooked into twitch or something because they play minecraft and like now now they want to be taken to chess tournaments and so that would be really cool i think if there is a, a scholastic boom i also think like chess as a kid's game on especially online i mean i think that there's something to be said as much as i love chess and you know i even though i mostly play on chess.com um but you know as much as i love all these chess websites um some i think if they if they if they could if they could um kind of uh integrate some sort of more esportsy sort of aesthetic to it to draw yeah. people in i would love that but 
there is something to be said about like, for example, my brother, Sean, um, I'm a quadruplet. So he's, uh, so, and he, um, I've been trying to get all my brothers to play chess and he finally caved after three years of me saying you would love this game. (laughs) He got this fatigue for playing all these video games and, you know, feeling like he was just kind of stuck, either stuck in narratives or felt like he always had to buy things. Or, you know, if you're playing something like Overwatch or League of Legends, you're learning your favorite character. And next thing you know, there's a patch and they're ruined. You know, nobody's patching the Dragon Sicilian anytime from now. <laughs> nobody's doing so. I think there's a, a, a lot to be said about chess. As, as it's, it's a lot like music in the sense that what you learn when you're younger, if you really stick with it, you will carry it with the rest of your life. And you think yeah, about a lot of these, these games like Fortnite or whatever, um, they're great. I'm not saying anything about the quality of the games. I know they're great games, but what where are they going to be in 10 years, 20 years? They, they'll right. just be memories. Whereas um, chess is, is something that if, if you f- do get a love for it, it's something that you really can carry with you for the rest of your life. And, you know, you can translate from over the board to online pretty easily. That, yes. that is remarkable. I mean, there, there, there are very few activities like that, period, on the internet that you can, like, just transfer one-to-one from, you know, competing online mm. and competing in person. And I, I find that amazing. I think in that sense that there's no, nothing better for the internet age than chess in that sense. Yeah, yeah, and like, and because there's nothing, there's nothing quite like you know sitting down in a bar, or coffee shop, or something. And you see a couple of people set up with a board, and you try and rotate and play a game and meet a friend. And like, it's been a joke with Amelia and I because like she is a far more social being than I am. She has more friends than I do. She thrives off of energy of friendship than me. But like, since we moved here, like I've made several friends just by looking around and figure out who the other chess players in Lincoln are, and like reach out, grab coffee or something, or meet up. And then just like, just like yeah, I made another friend today. Saw someone playing chess, talked for a bit showed them some puzzles and it's just been like such an amazing social thing that like and some of them really only got into it online or in the past year and like and to be able to have that translate is to IRL is really nice are, are you like one of the strongest players in Nebraska right now like I don't know what the mm-hmm. scene is like in Nebraska yeah um there are no currently I think that there's I think there's no like current uscf member who's a master so i think i'm up there i think i might be the highest rated but then there's a few people who aren't current who are over 2200 so there's people floating around and there's people who like had nebraska roots but don't live here anymore so they exist but there are like about a half dozen or so over 2000 so like if i'm if i'm the highest rated it's not by like a magnitude or anything Mm -hmm. so like and I think there is like once a year like a nebraska closed which is like the six or eight highest rated people in the state so that will just be like an awesome uh, tournament of similarly rated people, but it's not like Chicago where like, I don't think I was top, I don't think I was top 50 in Illinois. Wow. Um, so <laughs> I'm actually, you know, I'm going to Illinois for grad school actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. For, uh, for physics. That's right. Physics. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. That's why I'm so interested in you as a PhD because, mm. um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not planning on, on slowing down my chest improvement during my PhD program. I'm really, I'm also trying to, you know, uh, climb towards that 2200, like, I I, I I feel like I feel like it's a very attainable goal yeah. if I really work at it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Putting in the work, there's so many resources out there. Um, so where in Illinois, remind me, are you going to be? Urbana, Champaign. Urbana, okay. Yeah, so I don't, I mean, I mean, I know that like there's always a pretty strong chess team at the university, like more undergrads, but just because Illinois scholastic chess is so good that there's always a solid amount of very strong like master strength, expert strength chess players from Illinois who go to Urbana-Champaign for undergrad. So their chess, there's, there's, their collegiate team is usually quite good. So their club is usually quite good. But then, yeah, there's no shortage of tournaments in and around Chicago. Yeah, for you yeah, to play. I, 
Eric yeah. Rosen apparently was a University of Illinois team. He transferred out of Illinois last year, but Eric Rosen, I, I, I mm. think I read an article. I mean, if I could ever get Eric Rosen on this podcast, I'd love to ask him about it. But yeah, but uh, Eric Rosen apparently was on the U Illinois chess team. And uh, I think, yeah, I think they won like the, the, the college championship or something with, you know, his team. So I believe uh, it. And then I think um, Akash, who you might know from chess Twitter, Akash was on the University of Illinois chess team when he was oh, there. Um, yeah. So yeah, so there's no shortage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 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 excited. That's that's kind of like, uh, I I mean, I'm glad that there's going to be a, kind of a chess team there. I don't know how they're going to treat me as a grad student or you know PG student if there's you know, how well you know. But as yeah. long as I can have people to play games with and improve, that's that's all that really matters, you know. Usually, it's the grad students who don't want to be around the undergrads, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, is there like a well Narodisky was at was at Stanford and and Botes too. They're both chess at Stanford. Did you like ever play yeah. with them? I unfortunately was just like so checked out of chess at the time when I was still living there that like I I barely even looked into the chess club, but then I do remember it being kind of hard to find. So I think I might have overlapped with when Botez was an undergrad, but I unfortunately never got to meet her or play her. And then I guess I must have overlapped with Narodisky too, but no, I I missed the boat on that unfortunately, yeah. which is a huge shame. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, and Narodisky is also you talk about uh chess streamers one of the really one of the seems to me anyway like one of the nicest most genuine people on on, on twitch and also just an unbelievable player too charismatic passionate very good teacher and explainer too yeah i mean i i've put all my friends on on Narodisky stuff because mm. he's just yeah like you said one of the best at explaining and uh, that's that stanford education i applied to stanford <laughs> actually i was uh deferred and then i never got uh an answer because i committed to wesleyan oh nice yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, Stanford, you still got in to grad school for astrophysics. So I think you're doing pretty well. Yeah, I think it's fine. I'm not, I'm not too, too worried about it, but you know, um, I guess my last question for you, as I ask All everybody right. on the podcast, um, if you had one opening to teach anybody, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I used to frame this as one opening you'd play for the rest of your life, but I think that's a little too intense. So I just, it's like, you know, you have to like one universal opening across all levels. You have to teach somebody. Uh -huh. you know, what what would you pick? Just just don't don't think about it too hard. Uh huh. Across across all levels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go with a Scotch game for white. Great, um, great answer. So, which I've been getting into more in the past year. If you're listening to this before we're paired in a tournament, you can ignore that. But um, but I mean, I don't know. It's 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 an E4 opening, and so you know, at the lower levels, you're going to see E5 a lot. So you want something that's a little bit less. And you know, you can you can play the Scotch game, but you don't play Knight C3, so it's not the really boring four knights. And so it's a little bit more um imbalanced than two knight f3 three knight c3 which is like the, every beginner game in the four knights and it can get pretty dull and but then like it can really grow with you because like it's good it's principled it gets your pieces out as you're like working into those ranks where you can are learning a lot of like those yugoslav attacks in the sicilian you can discover that there's similar f3 g4 castles queenside pawn storm ideas and lines of the scotch so it can like really fit in with a lot of a repertoire and even when you're getting to around like my level there's lots of people who they really study their Rui lopez when they play e5 they study their gambit lines they study their italian but the scotch i think is kind of an afterthought or kind of has this reputation as being a pretty toothless opening and so you can learn a lot about like subtle positional ideas that can turn into pretty big nice attacking and balanced games so I, and that I, and so i could really see somebody you know really learning chess with the scotch and sticking with it till 2200 maybe at master level it's getting to the point where like the downside is pretty much any 
all of the decent responses against the scotch are good so you have to be prepared against like three or four different lines where black gets a good game so i could see that getting exhausting but no i'd say that um I would, I mean, if you were like, if somebody was like, I want to learn chess, I would start with the scotch. And if somebody was like, I want to get from 1600 to 2000, I would also give them the scotch. Yeah. And, you know, for you Nakamura fans listening, I think Hikaru said many times that he one tricked, uh, he one tricked the scotch from like zero to 2200 USCF. <laughs> so I didn't know that. that. That actually, that makes a lot of sense, especially for him, because you can, you can really play it a lot more. I remember like that was one of the things I learned in New York was I played a few like 2100 strength players who like, I would play E5 then, and they played the Scotch far more aggressively than I thought this kind of dull or so I thought opening could be played. I was like, oh, wow, like I'm getting blown off the board. And like it forced me to like sharpen up some defense and also to like learn learn a lot of nuances here. And it's also just a great way because since this is not something that the black player is typically memorizing their lines and up to move 15 or something, mm-hmm. it's a great way to just get a game of chess with some imbalanced edges to start pushing for on like move five. Yeah, And that's that's how you learn. I definitely agree. I mean, I I started using the Scotch even for Blitz, and it's it's giving me a lot of success. Yeah, uh, the, I'll I'll show you I'll show you a pet line of mine. It's like a an early side line for white that that I like that you might that throws people off. I'm down. Yeah, sure. Maybe hit the PGN. <laughs> I will. It's, it's interesting because everybody I've spoken to so far, I, I've spoken. My coach is Israeli Grandmaster, and um, but but everybody else I've spoken to is uh. Well, almost everybody else. Well, three. It's your guest number five, but I've spoken to three people, all from the Midwest. Uh, and I, I, I have to be honest. I really had no idea the Midwest had such a vibrant chess scene. You know, <laughs> I, I've, I've said this like off, off uh, recording, but I'll say it here now. Like, you know, when you think about like American chess, it's like always New York, New York, New York, and like, yeah. you know, occasionally Dallas, of course, St. Louis, Sinkfield. You know, I, I, I saw that article retweeted about how Sinkfield basically has bought chess influence. Of course, Aronian coming too. Um, to the United States uh, team, uh, which is great from a chess standpoint, you know, but right. we can talk about the ramifications elsewhere. But um, I, I really never knew that, that the Midwest, aside from St. Louis, of course, but that's been a recent thing over the last 10 years. I really never knew that, like, you know, Chicago and Detroit uh, and all these places had such, like, vibrant, like, chess scenes. And it just makes me want to experience it, too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's growing. And I think just having like and having I think really what you have there, I mean, with like, with D and Detroit, and then with like Nathan Kelly and Daniel Jones in Chicago, you just have a lot of passionate organizers who are trying to bring events, bring matches. And then you have like, like Len Panners based out of Chicago, who like runs the US amateur team north and various other tournaments. But it really I think really you have like, a few very strong players who are rooted in various Midwest cities. You have a few really dedicated tournament organizers and a few really dedicated organizers who are trying to grow the game in other ways. And like, that's really all it takes to like build a hub around it. You know, you don't need the Sinkfield billions, yeah. although it doesn't, doesn't it doesn't hurt, hurt. <laughs> but you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And I think also with the internet, it's really great just being connected to all these people. And I mean, I love that, like, you know, I still haven't been to Detroit, but I just have a whole squad of like Detroit chess friends who like are family to me. and um chicago has such a strong like blitz community and everyone's always staying in touch and knows where everyone else is going to be and where the games are that day um yeah and it's 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 a lot more vibrant than i expected when i moved there too yeah and just and i i think especially from an improvement standpoint i mean it's it's it is very nice to have like uh like temporal like in in space and in time locations to play chess but Mm it's easier than ever to improve too. And also to make these connections, like you said, with somebody in Detroit, you never, you said you've never been to Detroit, for example. Yeah. Um, 
it's it, it you know that's why that's why i love lead chess lead chess was the thing that brought me into chess because it's completely free everything everything on there is free that that's incredible you know it's all it's all donation run i mean that's that really in my opinion is a future of gaming um it, there's no inequity in that sense Every, it's, exactly. it's really just a purely fake and i also think quite frankly the chess detection on on lead chess is much better um but i will uh um i'll, I'll reserve that judgment um, no idea no idea I know how many people, I know how many of my opponents have been caught on each side, but I don't know how many people have gotten away on each side. So I don't, I don't really have an opinion. Ever since I hit 1900, I've just been getting like, I always get messages. Oh, one of your opponents was like once or twice a week. And this would never happens on, on, on Lee chess. When I play on Lee chess, I never get you know, the rating refunds, like, like at at the same frequency for sure. Um, I wouldn't be surprised in any case, but yeah, that's online chess in general. That's a cheating problem. It's unfortunate. Anyway, I want to I wanna thank you for hopping on. I hope I have you on again. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Best we of luck do, with your um, dissertation. Um, thank you, and best of luck starting grad school. I hope that this candidate is so amazing that you have me back on to eat my words in the near future. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because I'll be yeah. watching it even if I'm not enjoying it, so I hope it's great. So you, say, uh, you said you're basically rooting for Nepo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's going to be hard. I mean, I also like, I mean, I guess the one, the one guy we didn't talk about is Geary just because, I mean, I would love for Geary to finally get it together and like start converting some of these wins. He's clearly such a smart theoretical booked up player who is just tends to like lack that, cr- that sense in the critical moment. I would love to see Geary just go on a tear and beat everybody. Yeah. And then like, just imagine the year, like six months or whatever of smack talk on Twitter leading up to a Geary Carlson match. Yeah. Um, I would, I would love that, but I mean, I, sh- I, so that's, I think ultimately I'm rooting for that, but given that I don't see Geary winning two games, let alone five, um, I'll say Nepo. Yeah. And I mean, also the, 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 there's been quite frankly over the last year, uh, there's you know a, a lot of people call like Carlson Geary a bromance. I don't think so at all. There have been some legitimate Twitter spats between like, <laughs> Carlson's team and Geary over over like some really weird drama. Like yeah, but they both love it. I mean, maybe their teams don't like each other, but I think Geary and Carlson. I think are the, maybe Geary views it as a rivalry. Carlson maybe doesn't even view it as a rivalry, but Carlson definitely like. I think. Carlson's a troll at heart and I think he yeah. just really you know because it's like you can't troll Carolina you can't troll Ding you um, can troll so Hikaru really hard you can troll Hikaru really hard but he's not even relevant when it comes to like real chess but but like but but when you get to uh when you get to uh Geary this is somebody who's like still a competitive chess player who can still win these tournaments give Carlson a run for his money and also just like is down to like just be a complete idiot on on the internet with him, and I think I think Carlson very much appreciates that. Yeah. And ultimately, I think there's love in his heart at, at at bottom for Gary. I'm I'm personally I'll just say this, but I, I'm rooting for Grishuk because he drew all his games for seven, and mm. he hasn't had much of an online presence. Uh, it's true. And it's he I mean true. he hasn't performed particularly well either. But I know he spent last year basically and i, I think that's why karyakin's also basically vanished because they're both raising kids they're both you know they're both yeah. early mid-30s they're raising kids um but i think that grishik still has to be there and i think that mm-hmm. he's probably cooked up i hope he's cooked up a lot over the last 13 months you talk about like hidden preparation i think that he and you know grishik is a guy that's one of my favorite quotes um with increment there's no such thing as time trouble, time trouble. You know? <laughs> Uh, one of the all-time, but or also, yeah, I mean, there's so many great quotes by him. Just, uh, inc- yeah, great, great quotes. So I'm, I'm, I, I would love to see that match up. Um, 
but I guess we'll have to see. And I, I mean, I, I'm hoping it's exciting too. If the second half is exciting. I, I, I will, I will bring you back to eat your words. Absolutely. All right. I'll hold you to it. Yeah. But thank you for listening to 64 chess podcast. Um, and uh, I'll see you next week. Peace.